I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, and welcome to Earthfire Radio. Earthfire Institute is a wildlife sanctuary and rehabilitation center whose mission is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. A brilliant thinker and writer, Derek Jensen is a multi-award winning environmental author. Named the Poet-Philosopher of the Ecological Movement by Democracy Now!, he was named one of Utney Reader's 50 Visionaries Who Are Changing Your World. His books include The Culture of Make-Believe, Endgame, A Language Older Than Words, Listening to the Land, and many others. He's also co-author of Deep Green Resistance. Derek lives among the redwoods in Northern California where he works to improve habitat for the coho salmon who swim upstream near his home and for the red-legged frogs who sing nightly outside his windows. Press Action named him Person of the Year, writing, The recipient of this award was never in doubt. Derek Jensen's Endgame was the best work of nonfiction in 2006. Given the significance of its subject matter and the urgency of Jensen's message, Endgame is the most important book of the decade and could stand as a must-read book of our lifetimes. It is likely to send you into periods of despondency over the bleak future of the planet, but Jensen explains that if enough of us stand up and work together, the crash won't be as devastating, and the long struggle will eventually result in an explosive renewal of all forms of life on the planet. He writes, If we wish to stop the atrocities, we need merely to step away from the isolation. There's a whole world waiting for us, ready to welcome us home. His website is DerekJensen.org. Welcome, Derek. So you used to be called, you probably still are, radically radical, far out, etc. But times are kind of catching up. I wonder if, you, if um, people are beginning to listen to you more and understand what you're saying wasn't that radical. That's a great question. And um, I, uh, I have thought that, but um, I don't know. I don't know that it's happening that much. I mean, there was recently a, an op-ed in the New York Times about would it be a bad thing if humans went extinct? And there were a couple of problems. One is that the, the thing was very human supremacist, arguing that uh, humans are the only ones who appreciate art and humans are the only ones who make art, as opposed to entire forests, <laughs> the Grand Canyon and rivers and sunsets and um, uh, who thinks that nature doesn't create art has never seen grasshoppers who are just, they're, they're beautiful. Um, and so there was that problem. And then the other thing that struck me was that the New York Times in many places can contemplate the end of human existence and they can contemplate the end of life on earth. I mean, there are sort of mainstream sources who are talking about that. And 
Um, and yet it's still unthinkable. You know, I'm, I'm sort of considered crazy for talking about ending civilization. And so they, they skip that step. And it's, it's, I mean, I've been saying this for decades that, that this culture values the culture more than it does human existence or life on earth. And I just find that extraordinary that, that we should, we should literally value nothing more than life on earth. I mean, I am glad that even mainstream sources are talking about the end of this culture, even if it's indirectly in terms of the end of humans. I don't know. And then just today, I was at a planning meeting for the local, the local county. The, the, the actual planning doesn't, is not important right now. But the, the thing that is interesting is that there were some good things in it, like the... Well, what it was about was, was having to do with how they're going to legalize marijuana in this county. And one of the questions that was brought up by the county attorney that I thought was great was they were talking about removing water from local streams and how a lot of the streams can be this, we get a lot of rain here. It's a temperate rainforest and a lot of the streams will flow very heavy through the wet season and then they'll dry up in the summer. And so people were just talking, you know, and sort of general planning about the, the, the county. They were, they were saying, well, so it's okay to remove water during the winter and not, not in the summer. And the county attorney said, but, you know, the, the region evolved to have really heavy flows in the winter and not much flows in the summer. Mm. So don't you think that even removing some of the water in the winter would still harm the natural communities? Yeah. And I was astounded that a county attorney said something that smart. That was great. That that ecocentric. Um, and then the, the the response, and the the people on the panel were. I'm not saying anything bad about them. They all had good hearts, and they were all okay. Um, but the people on the panel were like. I don't know, we could probably take out 15, 20%. We don't know. We don't know what the numbers are. And I just, I thought it was an interesting conversation for a couple reasons. One is that 30 years ago, nobody would have been saying that the, that the streams need the, need the water. And for crying out loud, Donald Trump, you know, has said that any water that flows to the ocean is wasted. And so on one hand, it was encouraging. On the other hand, the way that this culture, one of the ways this culture is killing everything is by taking 20% of the water now and then 20% next year and then 20% next year and sort of incrementally, uh, you know, I love this line by John Livingston about there is no surplus in nature. Yeah. And everybody's body is somebody else's food eventually. And any any berry I eat is a berry that can't be eaten by a bird or by fungi, by mold. And that's not to say we can never eat any berries. It's to say that that's a reason that 50% of the wildlife has been killed in the last 40 years. Anyway, so is is society sort of catching up to my analysis? 
maybe, maybe in some ways, and maybe not in other ways. It's and it's certainly not happening fast enough to save the planet. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't know because there's also the whole line about um, it's hard to make a man understand something when his job depends on him not understanding it by Upton Sinclair. That's the same with entitlement. That it's hard to make people understand something when their entitlement depends on them not understanding it. So we we run into not just that the analysis has to be there, but denial has to be broken through. Um, but back to your question, finally, um, yes, I would, given the analysis I did in Endgame, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm delighted when other writers take those ideas and move them forward. It's, it's, I mean, it's not my book that's important. What's important is the ideas and the understanding get propagated. So that makes me absolutely delighted given how fast things are getting worse, I'm kind of surprised that uh, that the understanding that civilization is inherently unsustainable is not lingua franca at this point. I understand. I mean, I've written all about denial, so I understand that. But on the other hand, I mean, how much more obvious does it have to be than 50% or 40% of wildlife gone, 50% of wildlife gone in the last 40 years? And I mean, that's you know, over there. Well, it's it's over there, and it's also. I remember having a discussion with George Draffin, with whom I wrote a couple, three books, back in the early '90s, about how his mother, who was not particularly political, was noticing that there weren't nearly as many birds at her feeders as there had been when she was younger. This is 1990s to you know probably 1950s, and. So it is over there, but it's also, I mean, it is finally getting to be publicly acknowledged that when you and I were young, we are, are when, when anybody would travel, they would have to clean their windshield very often from insects. Right. And that's not a thing anymore. And I was just, last night, one of the last things I do before I go to bed is I throw some bread out for boxes or whomever comes and gets it in the night. And as I was opening the door, I saw one moth. And that was just remarkable that I saw one moth. Oh, one more thing is I was doing a talk in Galesburg, Illinois, um, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. And I flew into Quad Cities and uh, then call the person to pick me up to take me to the airport. It's late at night, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And I'm standing outside the airport and I can't figure out what's wrong until I realize that, you know, there's all those big lights out by the, out over the parking lot. And I can't see a single moth. Mm. And so I, you know, it's like there was something, what's wrong with this picture? And then after like 30 seconds, like, oh, I don't see a single insect and I'm in the Midwest. And um, so, yeah, I would think that this analysis would be pretty open, but uh, you know, I, I, even the so-called climate change movement, you know, they're all about maintaining this culture rather than stopping yeah. the 
protecting the planet. So, so there still is this motivation of what's important. It takes us back to New York Times that what is important, clearly, since they weren't discussing stopping this culture, but instead human extinction, this culture is more important than continued human existence. But I mean, yeah, I would hope that the analysis is getting out there. It's hard though, too, because I just, I get so many notes where people will write to me and they will say, I just finished reading this or that book. And then they will ask me questions that I answered directly in that book. And it, that sometimes makes me wonder why any of us write, because even when we make the analysis, a lot of times, you know, it's just, there's, there's still a lot of resistance to it, even when it's, even when the analysis may be correct. You're right, because you have to. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm going to quit. It's just, it's just, it, it, it's, um, not you, but any of us, we write because we have to. And I'm sure you face this too, that you'll, well, you know, I can't really blame readers because I think about, and I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but it's, I think it's pretty important that John Livingston wrote about how, Evolution, he believes, believed, he's dead. Evolution, he believed, was um, more based on cooperation than competition. And when I first read that in one of his books, like, it didn't make any sense to me because I was so, so inculcated into believing that, that evolution is based on purely competition, which is what we're taught in this culture. And um, so when I first read it, I resisted it. And then there's this great line that somebody else wrote about how it takes 10 years to change your mind. And he was talking about how he'd been very strongly anti-choice until 10 years later with no discernible transition, he found himself being very strongly pro-choice. Hmm. And so he wrote about that a little bit. And I realized that that's how, at least for me, that's how change occurs. Hmm. That it's not that, you know, so it's not some reader reading my book and being too stupid to understand the analysis or me being too stupid to have made the analysis good in the first place. But instead, it's that change happens through slow metabolization. And yeah. um, so I read John Livingston and it's like, no, he's just wrong. This is crazy. And then about for me, it took about three or four years for me to find myself with no transition now arguing that cooperation is the primary engine of, or primary motivator, primary fuel, primary motivator for natural selection. Well, one more thing about this, it's, it's, this is just classic, and it's also sort of classically male, that um, so many times I'll be talking with a friend and they'll say some great idea, and I'll go, hmm, that's really interesting. I got to think about that. And then about two months later, I'll go back to them and I'll say, I had this great idea. Yeah. And it's exactly the idea they said to me. Yeah. 
took two months for me to to get it. And the same thing actually will happen with my own ideas. I believe it was yours. Where I'll have this great idea, and then about six months later, I'll be walking through the forest, and this idea will occur to me, and I'll have to run over and say it to a friend or something, and the friend will say, uh, yeah, you told me that one six months ago. And, you know, so we keep having, that's, I think that's how we learn. So I can't really complain at readers for that. I can't complain to myself when I do it to other writers. But that's just part of the process. You're so insightful. I wonder, um, that three to four year period before you go from, uh, before you get to cooperation, can you go in and, and trace at all what the process actually was or how it happened? You know, that was, that was, that was almost 30 years ago. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And also, I'm just not sure. I don't, I don't remember. And I'm not even sure. See, part of the problem is that for me, a lot of that metabolization of ideas happens either unconsciously or through, and I got this term from John Livingston too, through rumination. And I love the term rumination because that's what cows do is they choose something and then they, they, they swallow it and then they bring it back up and they chew on it some more and then they swallow it. And I think that's what, for me at least, that's how this process works. That I would go, nah, 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 I'm making this up. This isn't actually what happened. But I'd go, no, 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 it's, it's all competition. That's just crazy. And then, yeah, I think this is probably how it works in most cases. I go, that's just crazy. And then two months later, I'm walking along somewhere and all of a sudden some piece that suggests that it's more cooperation will bubble up or I'll see something and suddenly make the connection. And then a few more months might go by and then I get another piece of information. This wasn't this information. I didn't learn this till much later, but for example, that in a forest, larger trees are feeding smaller trees through the mycelial network. So I might get a piece of information like that and then go, huh, okay. Well, that doesn't work with a competition model, but I'm still stuck with it for a while. I still stick with it for a while. And then a few months later, there might be another piece of information. You know, I'm thinking about something I read and I wrote about this in Endgame about how natural communities, what most people call ecosystems, I don't because that's machine language. So how most natural communities, it used to be believed that one unit of harm, no, one unit of causing harm leads to one unit of harm in the forest or river or lake. That if you put in one little bit of pollution, that will cause 1%, 1% of pollution, 1% of harm. But end up, that's not how it works. But the way it works is that the natural community or the system, whatever, will attempt to remain, will attempt to maintain this homeostasis, attempt to maintain stability is a better word, attempt to maintain stability, and you can harm it, harm it, harm it, and that harm, you don't see it. Right. When you reach a certain point, all of a sudden the entire thing collapses. Right. And I remember when I was writing that bit, 
for Endgame, this is 2003 or four or whenever, I talked to a psychologist friend of mine and I was telling her about this stuff I'd been reading about, about that, how that works. And she said, of course, that's how it works in families too. And it's how it works with addictions and how it works with everything. But a family will attempt to maintain some semblance of balance, say an abusive family, yeah. as the abuse gets worse and worse, they will attempt to maintain some balance until it just gets too much and the whole thing falls apart. It's, it's, the, it's the cliche of the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. And so she was saying that that's true psychologically too, that we will attempt to maintain mm. might have been harmed as a child. And then you will attempt to, you, you figured out a new way to cope. You may attempt to maintain that coping strategy long past its usefulness. Mm. And you may attempt to maintain it until it's obvious to everybody in the world that it's no longer working. And then the whole structure falls apart. This is the metaphor of death and rebirth. I mean, this is a metaphor of the Jesus story. This is the central metaphor of all life. And I think that's how, for me, ideas change. That I will do whatever I can, and I will struggle as hard as I can to maintain my old worldview. Then only after it is incredibly obvious to everybody in the world except me that the old worldview doesn't work anymore then it collapses and a new one comes up. And meanwhile, one hopes we've been preparing the ground for the new worldview underneath. Um, we've been ruminating on this new worldview, and so we can have a, a semblance of a decent transition. That's how the process often works for me. Um, but I'm thinking also of times that... that um, you know, I've gotten so many notes and letters over the years with people criticizing my work. And a lot of them are frankly just absurd and I can just dismiss them. But usually the good ones, I, um, <laughs> I try to dismiss as well. And the first thing is I get defensive. It's like, no, I was right. Of course I was right. And then once I get past the defensiveness, I can, you know, I can start, uh, ruminating my way around to understanding that I was in fact not right and I was wrong in the first place. And um, so I think for, I think just generically, that's how the process works for me. The reason I was asking is because anything we can understand about how the process works and can speed it up, the better. That's really true. That's I was I, asking you. That's for me also then I have to say that one of the things that's incredibly helpful to me is to have at least a fairly small community. I mean, it doesn't have to be a hundred people. It can be just some number of people with whom you can communicate and who can encourage you. See, here's part of the problem is that we get this culture one of the smartest things I ever wrote was what I think ended up being the second paragraph of a language older than words. In order to maintain our way of living, we must tell lies to each other, especially to ourselves. And it's not necessary that lies be particularly believable, but merely that they be erected as barriers to truth. And when you're told lies all the time by this culture, 
it's really helpful to have a supportive community with whom you don't have to fight all the time. It's like, I don't have anybody in my life with whom I have to revisit Civilization is Bad 101 every time I open my mouth. Um, just because I, I don't want to have to revisit that every time. I mean, I've got acquaintances. I've got people that I hang out with. But in terms of close friends, um, and it's not in terms of being insular. I remember back in the 90s, I asked Jeanette Armstrong, Okanagan writer and activist, a wonderful human being. I asked her, so do you still ever question, since this whole culture is just doing this stuff, do you ever question maybe you're wrong and the culture's right? And maybe you're the one who's crazy? And she laughed and said, you know, I used to do that all the time and I don't anymore because it's just so clear that the culture's crazy. And so one of the things that's really important, I think, well, I'm going to jump ship again and go a different direction or jump directions. And, and I remember when I talked to Judith Herman back in the nineties, she wrote trauma and recovery. Great, great book. Right. One of the things that she talked about is the first and most important thing for any woman to recover from her abuse the first thing is, is safety. The first thing is physical safety. And the second thing is emotional safety. So I think one of the things that's really important is to have a safe area. Oh God, I hate the word safe these days because of what the social justice warriors have done to that with creating safe spaces at universities where if oh, some yeah. speaker comes and scares you, you have to go watch videos of puppies. Now, that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about quite the opposite. I'm talking about space where it is where exploration is actually encouraged and where you know one of the one of the many wonderful things that my mother did for me and one of the best was that she encouraged me to ask questions and it really what the cliche really was true when I was a kid that there are no such things as stupid questions and I could ask a question and she would take me seriously and she would help me figure out the answer and I remember in my early 30s or my mid 30s, actually, I was dating this woman. And at one point I asked her some question. I don't I don't have any idea what it was. And she looked at me and she said, you really don't know the answer to that question. And I said, I have gone 35 years without being made to feel stupid for asking questions. And I don't intend on starting now. So it's not appropriate for you to make fun of me for asking a question to which I don't know the answer. Right. And so that's what I mean by a safe space is a safe space to ask. I mean, for God's sake, you know, it's like I asked the question. So um, is this culture inherently unsustainable? And I think that that's really key to everything. And sorry if this is going in directions you don't want to go, but this is, I think it's, you know, one of the central ideas of Endgame is that if you can slide your premises by people, you've got them. And unquestioned assumptions are the real authorities of any culture. Mm. And so 
I think one of the things that's really important to forward movement of any sort is the questioning of those assumptions. And that doesn't mean that you have to continue to entertain absurd notions. You know, you can, you can visit a question and then that doesn't mean that every time that question is brought up again, you know, having written Endgame, I don't personally answer every question now with somebody who writes to me and says, I'm sorry, can you explain to me how civilization is not sustainable? It's like, that's why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. And I want to say one more thing about, about this, that all this makes me think of, which is that um, Jeanette Armstrong told me about a process that their community uses to, the Okanagan Indian community uses for conflict resolution. It's called the Anaukan process, E-N apostrophe O-W-K-I-N. And the word Anaukan, it generally means I challenge you to give me your most opposite perspective to mine so I can increase my understanding. And two things about it, three things about it. One of them is that it's a, a brilliant method of conflict resolution that, that is applicable to interpersonal relationships. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to ask. You know, you get in a conflict, it's like, okay, I want you to help me understand your perspective so that I can increase my understanding and pre presumably change my behavior. So that's one thing. <clears throat> but Jeanette made clear also that there were, there were a couple restrictions on it. One of them is that you can't do it with somebody who's trying to take what you've got. So she said they have a really hard time doing it with the dominant culture in general. Because if somebody wants to steal your land, that's not the same as two neighbors having a conflict over, you know, your dog killed my chickens or something. That's that, that's, a, that's a whole different thing if you're trying to work with somebody who is abusing the process and trying to steal from you. So it's not, it's not, it's not a way to, to rationalize codependence. And then the other thing that was really interesting about it is it doesn't mean that you have to listen to stuff. But she said that the trained facilitators can often be quite ruthless in if somebody tries to, yes, I want to hear your opposite perspective to mine, but if somebody keeps bringing up the same old thing, that has been resolved, they go, look, we've heard that already. We're not interested in hearing it again. So it doesn't mean, the, the point of questioning things doesn't mean you have to revisit the groundwork every 15 minutes for every new person that comes by. It means you've opened the door, so to speak, maybe perhaps the same way that um, the door was open for you to cooperation. If you set it, you set the stage, there's a, there's a new idea out and when you talked about earlier about um, you believed that at first it wasn't cooperation at all, but the idea started to seep into your head. Mm -hmm. And then you worked with it. So I'm saying, I wonder if that's the same thing. You said the opposite thing once, and you don't need to say it again because it's out there. Right. The energy of it or whatever is already in process. Right. I don't know if that's true. It's just what I happened to think of relating it back to what you had said earlier. Well, the other, the other, the reason I'm putting these caveats on is because I think it's really important to question things, but I think it's also acceptable to come to conclusions. Yeah. Fit facts and are now reasonably settled. I mean, I don't think that we need to argue that when I drop this pencil, that it's going to fly upwards. 
I think the fact that gravity, uh, that, that gravity will pull this toward the earth is, is well enough established that we don't have to, it would be a, a complete waste of time for us to have to revisit this every time we pick up a pencil and go to put it back down. Or every time we're trying to talk somebody off out of jumping off the roof because they think they can fly. I mean, my point is that yes, question things, but it is also true that there are things that are, I hate the fact that I even have to say this because if we didn't live in this world that is so, in this culture that is so suffused with postmodern nonsense, yeah, we could just accept the fact that yes, you need to ask questions and then also accept the fact that some ideas are just monumentally stupid, yeah. like postmodernism, which is suggesting that all there is is discourse and there is no reality underlying it. Let's not go over there because that's a waste of energy. You know, I wish that I wish that we could take that exchange that we just had with you saying that, and then we could like transcribe it and then put it over the door of every philosophy classroom in every college in the world. Um, I think that students around the world would be better served if that was over the door of every philosophy department. We need to be a counterweight to it. And to the extent we talk too much about it or talk about it, we're adding energy to it. I gave a lecture on this once many years ago. The reaction was so bad, unfortunately. Hopefully it's changed now. I said, no, there actually is such a thing as reality. There may be many realities, but, there, <laughs> but that's another issue. Anyway, so I think, um, I think we're better served going directly to what is going on and we can do, or better served by the absolute beauty of what you said about the idea of art, that it was so human focused on human art, as if the Grand Canyon isn't art or a forest isn't art, because that stimulates and brings um, the creative, beautiful aspects of humans out. It helps support that rather than the negative. So I, I just think our energy is better spent trying to help with those kinds of truths. So one tree helping to feed another, um, to put more of that in the world. So I don't mind putting that in front of every philosophy department, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about it. enough. There's enough airtime talking about that and not enough about, I mean, it's such a beautiful insight you have, the definition of art. I would have added to that that I think animals do see beauty, by the way. Of course they do. Yeah, but that's, that's another discussion. So I was thinking some more about how you how you came to change it, the idea of rumination. So one of the reasons you write books, or I, I'm trying to write a book, I'm trying to do the teaching that I do, is to put those ideas out, to begin to open a space. But how do we make it faster was my basic question. How do we really understand the process and how do we make it faster? Because we have to, till we get to some kind of tipping point. I don't know. I just thought you might have an answer to that. Why? Well, I probably have an answer, but it might not make any sense. Um, you know, I, for me, there, some people talk about, quote, preaching to the choir as if it's a bad thing. But I don't really perceive that as a bad thing. 
I think the choir needs to be preached to. And I, you know, I, in some ways I sort of perceive myself as kind of like a person who is going into the, going to do some stuff for the USO and, uh, you know, sort of entertain the troops. And I think that that's really important. And I think about this line, um, I think it's a Buddhist line about when you're ready, the teacher will appear. And I think about that with some of the books I've read that, you know, I've said before that uh, Neil Evans the natural alien saved my life and it saved my sanity. And I was uh, browsing in the Spokane public library. The book jumped off the shelf at me and it was the first book I ever read that didn't take this culture's sort of everything exists for us perspective as a given and it just blew my world open and I think one of the things I try to do to speed things along is to simply tell the truth as I understand it to be and to, to, to argue for those truths and in so doing I hope that readers can this will then encourage them to go even even further with it and then the next reader after that will go further and the next reader will go further after that there was a great line that Barry Lopez said to me which is that we're all holding hands through time and for me that's one of the ways to speed up any transition and you know, if we're going to talk about transitions and speeding them up, then I also want to mention that in World War II, the best recruiter for the um, for the French resistance against the Nazis was D-Day. Their numbers exploded after that because there was a realistic possibility that the Allies would win. So I think another thing that really helps in recruitment or really helps to move things forward are some sorts of victories or also, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think those are two things that for me are very important. One of them is to uh, encourage people to, to take their own analysis farther, further. <laughs> the other is to um, somehow get some victories and to, to recognize that the dominant culture, see the reason that's really important to get some victories is that any oppressive form wants to naturalize itself and wants to make itself seem inevitable and unbeatable. Uh, that's one reason abusers will separate their victims from their social structure so they don't have right. realistic possibility of anything, they don't have a realistic possibility except the one they have. So, so to, to, to speed, speed along the transition, for me, the most important thing I can do is simply tell the truth and to push my analysis more out there and then hope that somebody else picks up my analysis and takes even further. Kind of like uh, in, um, rugby where you know there somebody's about to get tackled and then they throw the ball off and somebody else picks up and runs with it for a while 
Yeah, I wasn't asking so much what you could do as what the process of change is that we can somehow support that in ourselves and in others to the extent possible. Well, I think one of the things that's really important is to um, you know, another, another image I think of, oh God, where did I read this? It was in some mystery novel. Uh, one, one character in some mystery novel said this to another character, a thriller novel. Um, the first one through the door always gets killed. Hmm. And I think about that with, you know, sort of the old style military too, is where you have just waves and the first wave might not do very well. And the second wave does a little bit better and the next wave yeah. does a little bit better. And I think that's true in discourse too, that- Might be what happened to you, so to speak, right? As a leading radical. Kind of, yeah. Um, that I go out there and then people are like, God, he, he thinks that civilization is, is, we need to bring down civilization. That's crazy. And then, what do you know? 15 years later, the New York Times is saying that maybe humans should go extinct, which is not what I was saying. Um, but, but yeah, the point is that I think, you know, this is one of the things that, that you do that is so valuable is um, acknowledging the beingness of non-humans and mm -hmm. celebrating the beingness of non-humans and speaking openly and unashamedly and unembarrassedly about the beingness of non-humans. And so it can be, you know, the first people who do that, they get laughed at. And the second people get laughed at and the third people get laughed at. And maybe 10th, 11th, 15th people, they're like, well, that's kind of crazy, but okay. And then by the 50th person, they're like, hell yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. And it was mine. <laughs> not, they're not talking about me, you know? Yeah, exactly. And they're like, I had this great idea today. <laughs> yes, that's a fascinating process. I've seen myself do that, and it's a fascinating process. How did I do that? Because I try very hard to be an honest person, and yet suddenly I'll realize that I thought it, never mind. Um, it's an interesting side note. You know, when I say that evolution is based on cooperation, I am so full of crap. Because evolution is not based on cooperation. And it's not based on competition. It just is. And we can see elements of cooperation. We can see elements of competition. But whatever model we make up is going to be, by definition, less complex than the reality. It'll be limited by our brains. Exactly. I love David Ehrenfeld's line about how nature's not only more complex than we think, it's more complex than we can think. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with George Werthner last summer about uh, dead trees. And of course, dead trees are more important in many ways to forests than live trees are in terms of habitat. And a great example, he said, was that there was a big fire about 50 years ago, and in, it was around Yellowstone, and it takes whatever sort of tree was burned and fell down in the fire 50 years to decompose to the stage where it makes great habitat for a certain species of ant. And these ant populations have exploded 50 years after the fire and grizzly bears love to eat those ants. So he was saying that the fires 50 years ago are feeding the grizzly bears today. I just, 
I love how nature is. Yeah. Much bigger cycles than we can comprehend. Yeah. Just today, when they were talking about the water and the guy was saying, you know, 25%, we, I don't know, we can take out 25, we can take out 15%. It's like I said earlier, I was just thinking about how I love the line about how there is no surplus in nature. You know, that water is used by somebody. Yeah, the whole idea of surplus is totally surplus for us, to be used by us. Right. It's that mentality that's so critical to change. That to begin to understand we're part of something larger, truly, truly, truly in every way. And we yeah. should take as little as possible. The, 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 um, if somebody were to ask me what is the largest problem facing the world today? Yeah, I'll ask you. I wouldn't, okay. I would not say human supremacism, although I would be tempted. What I would say is the notion of supremacism at all. That it's both human supremacism, male supremacism, white supremacism. They all come from the same root of the same root problem of perceiving myself as superior to others and perceiving the others as resources for me to exploit as opposed to other beings to enter into relationship with, which can include me eating them and them eating me. Right. The notion that we're, like you said, the notion that we're separate is, is just, is, is one of the biggest problems that, that the world faces. What's, it, what's the beautiful quote you have at the top of your website somewhere? We wish to stop the atrocities. We need merely to step away from the isolation. There's a whole world waiting for us, ready to welcome us home. Yeah. To me, that's the essence of everything. I would add a whole world of exquisite beauty waiting to welcome us home. <laughs> yes, I would agree. And if we're going to edit it, I would also say, um, if we wish to stop the atrocities, we need merely step away from the isolation. And then we also need to stop those who are perpetrating the atrocities. Um, okay. Where's the quote on my desk? There's a little postcard I have here somewhere. I can find it. Anyway, it's something like um, the only thing that um, peop good people have to do, the only thing to, to, to not stop evil is for good people to do nothing. Right. Yeah. I, said, I, I didn't say it perfectly, but it's such an important quote. And so many good people are doing nothing. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, the big distinction is not between those who believe that we need to, you know, have militant resistance and those who don't. The big distinction is those who do nothing and those who do something. And people who read and think a lot and, and people, a lot of people who've come through working here, um, go back and take regular jobs. That's doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, to, to go back to Jeanette Armstrong, she said that uh, she is perfectly happy to talk to people and to walk them through the processes, but she's not going to do it if you're just going to come and spend a nice weekend hanging out with her and talking right. and then go back to the same life you had before. Right. But the criteria I have for anyone working here, not that it succeeds, mind you, but the criteria is that you're totally interested and passionate about the mission, which the mission being um, to respect all life. And that's, and everything you do here needs to be from that basis. 
and it's unbelievable to me that people can work here and I give them all that freedom to do that. And then they go and take a regular job because it pays a little more money or it's more convenient. It blows my mind. I had a woman here who um, helped us raise a couple of baby buffalo and she absolutely loved them. Was, uh, that wasn't quite the right story. She, was, uh, she also spent some time with our lynx. She met the lynx. She was with the lynx, this beautiful, sweet cat. And then she wrote something for the newspaper about how, well, the trouble is if you go and poach the powder in the beautiful ski basins we have here, it's bad for the lynx, but she wants her powder. How can you do that after you've met a lynx? It blows my mind. Because what happens is you make pathways and then other animals can come and they can kill the lynx because they're very gentle animals. It blows my mind. So I think sometimes people have to be exposed, but then you expose them and still they want what they want. Well, this is, this is, this is, I remember back in the early nineties, there was this um, idea that was floated a lot that if you could just get the CEOs of these terrible companies to spend a weekend out in the wilderness, then that would change everything. Yeah. No, no, actually they would go back to the entire system of social rewards that makes it so they can buy, you know, four houses and have a yacht and get completely socially rewarded with esteem and everything else and money for destroying the planet. And besides which the early European explorers who arrived on this continent, they spent more than a weekend in the wilderness and they hated it. And they yeah. killed the wolves as fast as they could. They killed the forest as fast as they could. Yeah. So it's not, you know, I just, I don't, I don't have an answer to this at all. I mean, you ask a really profound question with how can somebody go through that process there at the, the, with, with the lynx or with the buffalo or with the bears and then immerse themselves in this culture. I mean, I wonder this every day that, that in 2006, there was an article that was all over the mainstream news about how the oceans could be devoid of fish by 2050. And I don't understand why people aren't freaking out. And I don't understand why you can have docs and every mother's breast milk you know, a joke I used to tell in my talks was I would intentionally have the people who brought me give me a plastic water bottle full of water. And at some point during the talk, I would open it. Sometimes I would just bring my own bottle so I didn't have to do another one, but that's not the point. The point is that I would, in the middle of the talk, I would open the bottle, take a drink, and say, this is how I know we won't have a revolution. Because if people will pay for water bottled in plastic, they will suffer any indignity. And so I don't, you know, John Livingston, I keep referring to him today, <coughs> excuse me, in the fallacy of wildlife conservation, he talks about how he doesn't think that you can argue people into loving the planet. He says, that it's a state of being. Yeah. 
and that some people have it and some people don't. And it can be cultivated in some of the people who might have it latent, but not uh, manifested. And that, that he seemed, I don't know if he said this, but he seemed to be implying that some people just don't have it. And I don't know that I disagree. And I mean, certainly when you have an entire culture that is inculcating us in every way and reinforcing in every way a hatred of nature and a contempt for nature, a, such a contempt for nature that you don't even believe that they have subjective beingness and you don't even believe that anybody but humans is capable of, oh, I saw this argument that the only reason to protect wild nature is for human appreciation because, in fact, I was doing an interview with uh, <laughs> Nature Magazine, Nature Sick Magazine, because it had nothing to do with nature. And the guy was saying to me this exact argument, that the only reason to preserve wild nature is because, so humans can appreciate it, because non-humans have no appreciation for life. And no, so we're the only ones who can appreciate. And as he said this to me, I was looking out my window. I'm not making this up. It worked out perfectly like this. I'm doing a, doing a phone interview, looking out the window at a mother bear lying in her back in the grass in the sunshine with two babies playing on her belly. And I said to him, are you going to try to tell me that this mother bear is not enjoying the sunshine and enjoying the grass and enjoying the babies playing, her babies playing on her belly? Is that what you're telling me? He said, yes, that's what I'm telling you. And I said, have you ever had a relationship with a bear? <laughs> laughing. And so when everything in the culture is pointing us toward the notion, I mean, this, this kills me. About every five years, there's a set of articles in the newspaper that scientists have figured out that fish feel pain. <laughs> right. And how did they figure this out? They figured this out by, <laughs> sorry to laugh, it's not funny, but I'm laughing at the stupidity of the scientists, that they figured this out by injecting bee venom into the lips of, of fish, after which the fish would, quote, exhibit anomalous behavior. Yeah. I have to tell you, I used to be a commercial beekeeper. I have had bee, bee venom injected into my lips. And when they injected the bees, injected bee venom into my lips, I can tell you that I exhibited anomalous behavior which in this case meant jumping up and down, slapping in my face and swearing. And the fish did their fish equivalent of the exact same thing. And then five years later, there'll be another article in the newspaper. Wow, fish feel pain. Really? We could probably go on for a long time. Well, let's just set up another, let's just set up another one sometime. I would absolutely love to. But I would like to I remember the quote closer. The only thing that e evil needs to survive is for good people to do nothing. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. That, that, you know, the wonderful thing about everything being so messed up is no matter where you look, there's great work to be done. Absolutely. 
And it, it kills me that I am sometimes sort of classified as the violence guy because I will talk about fighting back. But the truth is, I think the work that you're doing is incomparably important. It's also fighting back in my own way. It is not removing physical dams any more than my work is removing physical dams. And Sam, a need for physical dams to be removed. But that doesn't alter the fact that you showing another way to be and you, no, 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 no. Part of what is so important about your work is the fact that you are showing humans other ways to be. And this will, we hope, ramify through the entire community. And through that ramified to the non-human world. And then the other thing you're doing that is desperately important is attending to the individual animals. This is where the, the, the whole, the dichotomy. See, here's the thing. <laughs> I used to teach at a prison. And <clears throat> when I taught there, the whole revolution versus reform dichotomy fell apart for me because I was fully aware every day that I walked in that I was participating in the biggest racist gulag on the planet. At the same time, a lot of my students were saying that the only things that were keeping them sane were our classes. Right. And so if we all wait for the great glorious revolution, there's not going to be anything left in the meantime. Right. And if all we do is reform work, then there's this culture is going to grind away till there's nothing. Right. So it is so important on two levels, you know, what, what, so that's why I, I think it's compassionate conservation and it's a ruthless dedication to the integrity of natural communities. I think both of those are absolutely crucial simultaneously, even when they contradict. And, and at the places where they contradict, then we have to have both beings and ideas in conflict, which happens too. And I love this phrase that someone once said to me, which is, we don't need to make the world safe. We don't need to make the world safe from conflict. We need to make the world safe for conflict. Because you and I are going to end up in conflict. And me and the dogs are going to end up in conflict. Last night I was in conflict with the dogs when a plant fell over. It grew sideways and fell over on its own. And the dogs thought that this was a burglar and <laughs> would bark and bark and bark and bark and bark. And at, after a time, I got kind of tired of them barking and said, okay. And then we had, well, it was a very friendly conflict, but right. now can process. <laughs> and, um, anyway, the thing I haven't said that's really important about your work that I think is also absolutely crucial is it's crucial to the individual non-humans whose lives you transform as they transform yours. I think that's... I don't know if I transform them, but I see them. At least they're seen. I'm sorry, what? I don't know if I transform their lives on some level, but at least they are seen and appreciated. I was talking about on a physical level. Oh, okay. When you take an injured animal uh. who might otherwise be euthanized or might otherwise end up in a zoo or might otherwise end up 
in some terrible circumstance and you, you um, give that animal a home, that is, um, that is not going to save the planet, but that is going to save that animal and it's going to save you. And it's also going to just be, it's a wonderful thing. The joy of the interaction and the, and the, you use the word ruthless, which I, I didn't know if was debating, is it strong or not? Probably not. Because if you do any give in at all to beginning to um, think about taking part of an ecosystem or we give in at all about, well, we can do this to an animal or that to an animal, we're already lost. It has to be a ruthless recognition of their value and integrity. It's a strange juxtaposition of words given what ruthless means, but unwavering, unswerving, un... Unwavering, I like that. Yeah, unwavering commitment. This is Dr. Susan Eirich for Earthfire Radio, a production of Earthfire Institute. If you would like to help with our mission to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature, please make a donation at our website, www.earthfireinstitute.org. The soundscapes are by Wild Sanctuary Presents, Bernie Krauss and Philip Auberg. Thank you for listening.